the bombing from Okinawa to Vietnam was a C-130 Hercules four-engine, and it was the U.S. military service supply logistics aircraft. Mm-hmm. Very good aircraft. Great safety record. Held a lot of cargo and a lot of people. And I went to Vietnam in the C-130, which landed in Chu Lai, and the ramp dropped. I had a ramp in the rear of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Ramp dropped, and I saw Vietnam for the first time. And it was like a big sand dune. Mm-hmm. The people were sand-colored. The tents were sand-colored. Everything was sand-colored. It was a fine pumice-like sand, which was not good for equipment or vehicles. Yeah, it gets you tend to find them down. I went to. The, I was met at the airport by a driver in a jeep. Officers could not drive their own jeeps, which was a little strange, but. So we all had drivers. They came out of our platoon, and your driver drove your Jeep for you. Um, I went down to where the third platoon was. This was the third platoon, Company A, third tank battalion, fleet marine force, Pacific. And I was the platoon commander. Mm-hmm. I relieved another lieutenant who was going back to the U.S. and going to be getting out of the Marine Corps. He was a first lieutenant. I was a second lieutenant. Or as I, some people call them, a brown bar or a butter bar, because that's the color of your bar. Um, I was lucky to get a very good platoon. They were well-trained, they were well-motivated, and they didn't make any mistakes. Well, that's good. The first mistake, yes? Um, you were talking about um, there weren't any mistakes? Again, please? Um, you said that you were talking about uh, they didn't make any mistakes. You were talking about your platoon. Yes. The first mistake which occurred was we had been um, trying out an idea that I had introduced the 3rd Battalion's commanding officer and that we would take a tank, an M48, one of my five, I had five tanks and about 40-some men, and we would take one of those tanks, put it in a landing craft medium, LCM-8, mm-hmm. and in essence provide naval gunfire support for infantry operating ashore. 
and worked like a champ. Everybody had a lot of fun. Uh, the infantry liked it because we could provide almost instantaneous support. We were line of sight. And the troops on board, Mike Eight, the crew, they loved it because it gave them a chance to fire their automatic weapons, 50 caliber and 30 caliber machine guns. Wow. And Mike loved it because it was fun. They got to fire a few 90 millimeter rounds and that was a gun that the M48 had, 90 millimeter. And there's a difference. People talk about artillery and tanks and things and they refer to them as having guns or howitzers. Now, do you know the difference between a gun and a howitzer? Um, wasn't a howitzer some kind of, um, like, like heavy deck cannon aboard a ship? You got part of it is right. The howitzers tended to be bigger, heavier, and they started with 105 millimeter and then went up to eight inch, so on and so forth. But the howitzer tended to be a lower velocity round and it tended to have a high arc when fired. Hmm. And where a gun is high velocity and tends to be um, line of sight. Although we did shoot sometimes acting like artillery, but the, the gun has got is a faster round and so on and so forth. Most tanks have guns. Anyway, uh, we were we finished doing this exercise and we were coming back to the beach and the underwater demolition team swimmer went off the bow of the LCM-8 and he uh, bobbed up to the surface, he said, about six feet deep. And I told my driver, Dan Senecal, guy from Los Angeles, I said, I'm going to pump up the seal and you close your hatch when I tell you and we'll go on into the beach. So I pumped up the seal and we traversed the gun around and I said, okay, Senecal, head to the beach. So we, uh, the M48 weighs 52 tons. Ooh. We're talking about a lot of weight. This guy, my driver, goes down the ramp like a shot, boom, into the water, and really going as fast as he can to the beach. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Um, so we got to the beach, and I had noted... On the way in, I looked down between my legs and I could see on the fighting deck it was covered with water. This is not good. So we get to the beach and I get out and I look and there is Dan Senecal sitting with a sheepish look on his face, getting closed his hatch. He went into the beach by holding his breath and hoping that he wouldn't run out of air before he got 
on dry land. Well, the result of this was I spent the night with the crew, the people out of the mine maintenance section, and some volunteers from the 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, where we were in their space with them, with 55-gallon garbage cans, filling them with fresh water, and dumping the water in the topside hatches of the tank, having removed the hole plugs. They had plugs in the bottom of the tank so he could do just what we were doing. And we spent the night flushing out the tank. Had we not done that, the salt water would have corroded all the wiring, short-circuited things like the generator, and we would have had a, a deadline tank. So that was, that was not a great learning experience, and I was ultimately responsible for that because I failed to follow the last troop leading step, which is supervision, and making sure that when you tell somebody to do it, they do it. I told Senecal to close the hatch. He didn't. That would have been my fault. It was a learning experience for a second lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one question. Where would you like to go from here? Um, yeah. I have a question on... So, um, when did you leave Vietnam? Like, when was your last time there during the war? Okay. My first time leaving was, I mentioned before that I'd arrived on the 29th of June, 1965. I left in August of 65. I left on the 18th of August because that was after I'd been wounded in Operation Starlight. What was that? Which was, well, Operation Starlight took place in August of 1965 on what was known as the Batangan Peninsula, about six miles or 10 miles south of Chuai. It had been a Viet Minh stronghold when the French were there and it became a Viet Cong stronghold after the Americans arrived. And there was intelligence gathered that put a Viet Cong regiment in the Batangan Peninsula. And it was determined, it was decided by the senior Marines that they would strike at this regiment before it attacked the airfield at Chu Lai, which was what their objective would be. And the operation came off in about three days. It was really well planned. There was a few little minor glitches, one of them being that the operation was supposed to be called Starlight, 
S-T-A-R-L-I-G-H-T. And the clerk, who was typing up the operations orders, <laughs> made a mistake and typed Starlight, S-T-A-R-L-I-T-E. And that's the way the operation order went out. And that's still what it's called today, Operation Starlight, L-I-T-E. <laughs> anyway, on the morning of the 18th of August, we'd embarked the night before aboard amphibious shipping. We went down the coast. On the morning of the 18th, we were offshore off the Batangan Peninsula. And the amphibious assault began, amphibian tractors taking the infantry in. We went in on LCM-8, or I should say an LCU, which was a landing craft with ramps front and back about 130 feet long. Could carry three tanks or combinations of other things. So we went ashore in support of an infantry company, direct support, meaning when the infantry company commander says, do something, we're in his chain of command and we do what he directs us to do. So it was difficult going because of the terrain for starters. There were lots of rice paddies, villages, um, fence lines, anything that would hinder your traffic ability we encountered <laughs> and we went ashore and as we approached the first of the Vietnamese villages in the area which was Hantung 1 we began to take fire and it, one of my troops told me later said you know Lieutenant it sounded like it sounds when you're on a rifle range and it's dead silence and then the range director says something to the effect of ready on the left already on the right already on the firing line stand by targets targets are coming up targets come up they're pulled up on ropes and pulleys and the firing line opens fire, and it's a staccato sound, very loud, very rapid. Well, this was what this village sounded like. We were encountering orders, uh, turned out later, 75 millimeter recoilless rifles, machine guns, um, satchel charges and the um, got difficult real quick one of my tanks um, although I only found out later in the operation we had, I had three tanks with me 
because the other two tanks I didn't have amphibious shipping for, so they were going to have to wait to come down when shipping became available, more LCUs. Um, as we got into Bantung 2, the firing even increased to a higher degree, us shooting at them, them shooting at us. And I had um, one of my tank crewmen was wounded, and it was a very strange wound, because he had been in the tank inside the turret, but he's standing at the end of the gun, the area we call the breach, and the breach block, which rises and falls, depending upon whether you want something around in the gun or to take a round out, the breach block was down. And McQuarrie was standing behind the breach when a Viet Cong from probably 20 feet away from the tank opened fire with a machine gun. And one of the rounds, one of the bullets, came up the tube of the 90 millimeter gun and struck McQuarrie on the arm. Ooh, that's weird. I badly wounded him. Um, about that stage of the game, I was calling in for medevac. I needed it. I needed to find out where the wounded were being taken so we could take down a quarry. And I went, uh, I looked across the rice paddy to my left. I could see of my tanks, Alpha 3-4, was just sitting there and not doing anything. And I tried calling them on the radio, but we had no radio communications from shortly after we came ashore. The firing at the tanks tended to destroy the antennas. So I decided I'd better find out what was going on over there. I could see that Alpha 3-2 was to my right. It was heavily engaged. And the strange thing about all this, Carson, was it didn't seem real. Um, I felt like I was in a movie. I was watching these events unfold. Alpha 3-2 over there surrounded by Marines jumping up and down and firing into the bushes and what turned out later to be Viet Cong coming out of the bushes and firing at the Marines. One of the interesting engagements I can't hear you. Uh, you're kind of cutting in and out. Okay. Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Can you repeat Okay. My little plank, 19 years old, was the driver. And he was sitting in his driver's seat, 
Roman candle was headed towards my tank. And I had just time enough to duck. Although when I think about it, why ducking would have done any good. When the right front of my tank got hit by another 75 millimeter round, it penetrated the tank and took out part of my right foot. Ooh. So it was not a great situation to be in. I had uh, Alpha 3-2 finally got disengaged and came across the field and fired on this recoilless rifle. The first round, 90 millimeter, first round went over the heads of the crew. The second round was dead on and blew them to smithereens. So that gave me some satisfaction that at least their day had been ruined as well. I had, uh, I had jumped out of the tank. My loader had gone out one side, now I'd gone out the other side of the turret. And I was sitting in the field with Patty, coming to the realization that part of my right foot was gone. We had black boots and black socks. And when I first got down on the ground, I looked at my foot and it was all black. I thought, that's kind of crazy. I, I couldn't tell the difference between the wound, which was black, my socks and the boot. But then I heard people yelling so I turned around and the infantry in the trench were gesturing with their arms. You're being fired on. You're being shot at. So I had, uh, then I noticed that there were these little spurts of dirt going up around me. And I was being shot at. So I decided I better not stay out in the field for long. So my loader helped me get over into the trench line with the Marines. And I stayed there until um, a helicopter came in. And they threw me on the helicopter, along with the tank commander from Alpha 3-4, Ed Seipel. He was the one that almost had his leg amputated. Mm -hmm. And we flew together back to battalion aid station and they were this thing had gone on gone off the operation had gone off so well that a lot of them the marines back at Chulai weren't aware of anything going on they'd seen a lot of stuff get loaded the day before but they hadn't realized the magnitude of the operation that was going to be going on. Matter of fact, I'm told, I don't know how true this is, but the first indication that they had was when a helicopter came in and made a kind of a strong landing, as they say, a controlled crash, and the crew chief was helping the 
co-pilot to fly it. Pilot was dead. And they, he said to the helicopter crew, where the hell are you coming from? They yelled, south of Chulai, there's a big operation going on. There'll be more like this. Then the helicopter started to come back with the wounded. There were, uh, anyway, my, that was when I left Vietnam the first time. How many more times? I was back in the States in two and a half days. It was really most amazing. So, uh, how many more times did you go back? I went back once. I went back in 1970. I did some, worked with an operation called CORS, Civil Operations Rural Development Support. They had programs that ranged from pig farming to the Phoenix program, which was a CIA program designed to eradicate the Viet Cong hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So which one did you do? Well, I wasn't with the pig farmers. You were with Phoenix. No, I wasn't with the CIA. I was the guy who was known as the Hamlet, Hamlet, yeah, 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 I get it yet. Hamlet Evaluation System Officer. Each month, the advisors all over Vietnam, in my case, all over I-Corps, which was the northernmost military corps, we had uh, these reports that we filled out and then sent to Saigon, and the report was supposed to tell how we were winning the war or losing the war. It was different. It was fun, I guess. I did a lot of reports, did a lot of driving around in I-Corps because sometimes reports didn't make sense or they had sections missing. And so I'd go by helicopter or go by jeep depending upon what was closest. So that's what I did my second tour. That lasted 10 months. That's a long time. I worked time. out at Da Nang, which was one of the major cities in I-Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, doing these reports. And every now and then I would get down to Saigon and see the guy that I worked with. He was a civilian, had been in the Army. Got out of the Army in Vietnam because he spoke fluent Vietnamese and French and English, obviously. But um, I'd send these reports to him and then he in turn would take them over to MACV headquarters, the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, MACV. It was General Westmoreland's organization. But in essence, everybody worked for MACV. Um, what else would you like to know? I feel like I'm running on. It's okay. It's fine. Um, I do have uh, two more questions. Uh, the first. Okay. Well, why don't we get to the questions? Uh, the first question is: um, I believe you received. A purple heart, or am I incorrect about that? That's correct. 
So what happened? I was wounded and uh, engagement with hostiles. So I got a Purple Heart. Mm-hmm. If you fell off your bicycle and skinned your knee, that didn't count for a Purple Heart. <laughs> so it had to be uh, action involving the enemy. Hostile fire, grenades, whatever. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Um, my last question is, what does Veterans Day mean to you, today's Veterans Day? What is what? Veterans Day. Veterans Day. Oh, Veterans Day. Well, it's acknowledging, it has its origins, of course, in, uh, in World War One which was the 11th month, the 11th day, and the 11th hour, the fighting ceased. And ever since then, we've had Veterans Day to honor veterans who have made sacrifices on behalf of their country. So um, uh, when Veterans Day happens, what do you think about? Well, I think it's... uh, Everybody didn't get a parade. So, it's nice that even if somebody says thank you for your service, that's a compliment. Recognizes what you've done. Some people were in combat, some people were not, but everybody served. I wish we had a draft. Because then it would, everybody would have to serve their country in one form or another. Um, so, uh, well, thank you so much, Kai, for your time. It's been great. Um, I'll see you at Christmas, maybe? I don't know. Are you coming down to the beach? Yeah, I think so. Well, check it out. We'll certainly... Hello, and welcome back to Some Real News for Once with Carson Robinson, History Edition. Today, I'm going to be talking to Kai Thompson about okay, the hi. Vietnam War. So, here's Kai. Hey, Kai. So, um... Okay, we ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, shoot. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Vietnam War? Like, you're part of it. What were you doing during it? Well, I had graduated from college in 1964 and I had been sworn in as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And in August of 1964, I went off to Monaco, Virginia to a warning center or training center for lieutenants of learning the subjects of what the Marine Corps does, how it's integrated between and among uh, various supporting arms like aircraft, the air element, armor, infantry, and so on. 
and that went from August of 64 until February of 65 when I packed my bags and went out to Camp Pendleton, California. I went there for the purpose of tank training. I wanted to, I need to find out about the M40 A3 tank, mm-hmm. which was the service tank in the Marine Corps at that time. It had come into the Marine Corps inventory in the early 1950s, but was still considered be combat effective and um, it stayed in the inventory until the end of the 60s when the M60 tank came in and that was followed by the M1A1 Abrams but that was I never went back to tanks again after I did my first tour in Vietnam so how long was your first tour uh, funny you should ask that. I was there for 51 days, I believe. Wow, that's not that long. I have, but that is. No, kind of it's long. not that long. Um, I was, I went in country into Vietnam in the end of June. I've been in Okinawa, Japan, biding my time, waiting to get on a list of people who would be flown into country and I landed in the airfield at Chu Lai. Chu Lai was about 10 miles south of Da Nang and it was what the Marine Corps call a SAT field. S-A-T-S. And um, one question, what I, is a SATS? Say again? Uh, what's that uh, field thing, the SATS or something, I think it's called? Yeah, the, the SATS field was uh, made by interlocking aluminum panels. And they were like the Marston matting of the Second World War. They um, could be locked together and you've made runways and parking areas and refueling strips and so on and so forth. Uh, but they were, the pilots didn't like them because they said by the time they reached their takeoff speed, the aircraft were vibrating so badly that they couldn't read their instruments. Ooh. That's... Now, the aircraft that were being flown out of, like, diverged from that. Uh, the aircraft that were being flown out of Chulai were primarily A-4 aircraft. The A-4 was a little aircraft, small by most people's standards, and there were usually about 12 of them the runways at Chulai, two of them being in what were known as uh, hot pad positions with the pilot sitting in the cockpits, strapped in, sweating like dogs, 
because it was usually around 100 degrees there in July, and the humidity was very high. So it wasn't a lot of fun to sit in your cockpit. They had the canopies open so they could get some air. And they, that's what was flying out of Chulai. Now, what got me there was a C-130 air. After the break, well, thank you to Kai first, of course, but after the break, we're going to be talking with Lan, who's a descendant of a Vietnam war vet on the Vietnam side of things. So, don't go away. And also, we will be talking with her about the Vietnam War history. And also, on Sunday, our next episode will be on World War One, the first part of World War One, or just World War One overall. We'll deal with that when we get to it. But on Friday, an interview with George Flynn on the history of the Catholic vote in American democracy. And don't go away. And um, also our other podcast, Some Real News for Once with Carson Robison, has a new episode coming out where we'll be speaking with our financial correspondent, Margaret Robison, and several other people, possibly. Bye. See you after the break. Hello. I was just joking. I was about to say three, two, one. But hello and welcome back to some real news for once with Carson Robinson. Before the break, you heard the story of Kai Thompson, a U.S. Marine. Now we're going to be talking with Lan, the granddaughter of a Vietnamese soldier. What? He was a soldier in the Vietnam War, so yeah, there's that. Yeah. So um, let's talk about some facts about it. The Vietnam War, um, also known as the Second, how do I say this? Indochina War, as in Vietnam War, yeah, yeah, but other, not correct. Uh, and in Vietnam, as the Resistance War against America, or simply the American War, was well, a conflict. Technically, what? It was a proxy battle, basically. Another, another, what, another one of several during the Cold War era. Yeah, I believe Russia had something to do with it. I'm not. Yeah, sure. the Soviet Union. Yeah, they uh, had a little kind of say, hey, why don't you help us out? We take out America. And Vietnam's like, hey, since we're communists, then eh, why not? Yes. So, um, it last. It was a conflict in Vietnam. Laos and Cambodia from November 1st, 1955 to the fall of Saigon um, yeah, you say, yeah. and good. in uh, third, the 30th of April in 1975 which was the second of the Indo-China Wars which was officially fought between North and South Vietnam. North Vietnam was supported by the Soviet Union, China and other communist allies. South Vietnam was supported by the United States. And like capitalist countries like that? Uh, United States, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, Thailand, and other anti-communist allies. The mm-hmm. war is considered, like you said, a Cold War era proxy war by some. Lasted 
But a quick thing about what a proxy war is, is a proxy war is an armed conflict between two states and non-state actors which act on instigation or on behalf of the other parties that are not directly involved in the hostiles. Yes. So, um, it lasted 19 years, with direct U.S. involvement ending in 1973, including the Leyton uh, Civil War and the Cambodian Civil War, which ended with all three countries becoming communist in 1975. The conflict emerged from the first Indo-China War, uh, which began in French Indochina on December... Where Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam are, coincidentally. uh, Which lasted uh, from uh, November 19th, 1946 until July 20th, 1954. Kind of like right after the um, World War II. And the Korean War and stuff like that. Yeah, it was led by Vien- Viet Minh. Yeah, most, you got right. Most of the funding for the French war support was provided by the U.S. after the yeah. French quit Indochina in 1954. What are they? they got, like, fired. And too many French people kept dying. Yeah. The U.S. assumed financial and military support for the South Vietnamese state. The Viet Cong, also known as the Front National Deliberation de Sut Vietnam, or NLF, the National Liberation Front, a South Vietnam... The South Vietnamese... Military uh, units and stuff like that. Yeah. What front, common front, under the direction of North Vietnam, in initiated a guerrilla war in the South. Um, there so there's a lot of cool stuff. Information, but um, uh, President John F. Kennedy uh escalated U.S. involvement through the MAG, AAG Military Assistant Advisory Group. That was just under. Uh, a thousand military advisors in 1959 to 16,000 to ni- in 1963. So that's a lot. Basically, more than 15,000 were added. Uh, so, well, that's a lot going on. But really, there's some really interesting things to know about. Um, Lan, so your yeah. granddad, I believe it was, was in yeah. the Vietnamese War? I can you, uh, what side? Uh, the Vietnamese side. North or south? North. Okay, so can you... Uh, or south. Yeah, probably like south. So can you tell us a little bit about him? Or how he well, felt? Well, I don't know anything about him besides for the fact that, well, he's deceased. Oh, so how did he die? Illness. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But, um, so, uh, let's... Let's just look around Danang. So yeah, um y'all may be thinking, hey, you know, Vietnam's a relatively small country. Like why why did it take so long to finish the war? And well, um, I have a short little visual for you. So imagine a thick forest, rainforest specifically full of mosquitoes and other parasitic bugs that will literally transmit diseases to you. Like malaria, for example. And then and then just 
envision Asian people in those tropical trees with AK-47s and uh, and other Cold War weapons like that that are definitely outdated by now. Yeah. So um, that's interesting. Well, everyone knows what op. Well, as you know, earlier in the episode, we heard about Operation Phoenix was made by the CIA to take out the hierarchy of North Vietnam, which was an interesting thing. There was also the Tet Offensive, or officially called the General Offensive and Uprise of Tiet Ma, then, um, then 1968, was a major escalation of one of the largest military campaigns of the Vietnam War. Because it happened during the Vietnamese New Year, or Tet, for example. There we go. That's it. Uh, It was launched in January 30 by the forces of the Viet Cong, VC, and the North Vietnamese. Um, Also, there was the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, which were the ground forces of the South Vietnamese military. Yep. Um... And they suffered over 1,394,000 casualties during the war. The, the, uh, the VC sustained heavy losses during the Tet Offensive and subsequent ASRVN operations in the rest of 1968, losing over 50,000 men. The CIA's... Uh, Phoenix program further degraded the VC's membership and capabilities. By the end of the year, the VC insurgents held almost no territory in South Vietnam, and their recruitment dropped by over 80% in 1969. So that's a lot to think about. And quite humiliating, too. Yeah, there was some interesting leaders. There was Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh, yeah. Yeah, he was, um... He died. So, who was he again? Well, he was the leader of North Vietnam for a while, until he died. Oh, well, yeah. No, of course, he dies early. And then there was... I mean, he was a relatively old guy, and, well, racked with disease as well. So, well, that can be explained. I mean, mosquitoes and malaria and stuff like Le that. Le Duan was a Vietnamese communist politician. Disgusting. Uh, there was, uh, Vo uh, Nguyen Gop, who was the, an army general in the Vietnamese People's Army and a politician. And I'm pretty sure he used to be a history teacher, too. Yeah. How uh, ironic. Yeah. Lee, uh, Dirk, um, Thao, really um. fucking names. Just give me the goddamn list, mate. Well, um, you can go to uh, Wikipedia at Vietnam War, and there's these oh, commanders. No, I going to Wikipedia. Okay, sad. But uh, there's a lot. We'll and... just skip the names because, well, they are clearly too hard to pronounce for Carson. Yeah. Well, I um. Blame him. Vietnamese is the third hardest language in the world. Yes. Uh, nuclear threats and diplomacy. Let's look there. The U.S. President Richard Nixon began troop withdrawals in 1969. His plan was to build up the RVN so they could take over the defense of the South Vietnam, also became known as Vietnamization, as the PAVN slash VC recovered for their 
1968 losses and generally avoided contact. Creighton Abrams conducted operations aimed at disrupting logistics, a better use of firepower, and more cooperation with the ARVN. On October, on the 27th of October, 1969, Nixon had ordered a squadron of 18 B-52s loaded with nuclear weapons to race to the border of Soviet airspace to convince the Soviet Union, in accordance with the madman theory, that he was capable of anything to the end... Mutually assured destruction basically said, "Hey, if you if you nuke us, we'll nuke you, and the world will end, and it's both our faults." All right? Yeah. So that he was capable of anything to end the Vietnam uh, War. Dude, my dad is calling me. I have to hold for now. Got it. Bye. So he also sought uh, DNT um, with the Soviet Union and rap or treatment with China. And which decreased global tensions and led to nuclear arms reduced by both superpowers. However, there was disappointment when both sides continued to supply the North Vietnamese with aid. Okay, one more thing. Um, sorry about the language land said in that one little bit. But um, this is it. And uh, you can go to Wikipedia. All right. So I'll Nixon... So basically, Nixon committed war crimes against the Vietnamese people. Also, Watergate, of course. That's another thing why people hate him. The Watergate scandal happens. A lot of things happen, basically. He also um, did a bunch of other weird stuff. But um, the Paris Peace Accords basically said you can't commit war crimes, like what the U.S. did to Vietnamese people during Nixon's terms. Um, he was a horrible man, and also, um, everyone hates him. So, that's kind of interesting. If you don't hate him, what kind of person are you? Do you watch animals die for fun? Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. I'm also like, looking God at... God knows what you do if you support Nixon. Also, there was, um, there was these, uh, people who did demonstrations, anti-war demonstrations... And they were talking about how horrible, um, horrible the... How of a fiend that, that Nixon was. Well, well, he did some really horrible things. Um, he, uh, what, what really is the problem is Nixon was a horrible man and also there were anti-war demonstrations going on, a lot of them. And they kept going. And like, so... So that's hilarious. Um, there's some funny jokes that they have. But also the worst part is... Uh, the fact that so many people died. So many people. And it lasted 19 years, which was horrible. But thank you so much, Lan, for talking about this. And um, call you later. And uh, we're going to be doing another episode, I believe, on Sunday. So I might ask your help for that. Yes. And you can hear me rant more about how horrible of a government we have as of now. Well, it's getting better because we got Biden now. Yeah, but you can still hear me rant about how horrible of a country America has become. Yes, that is true. But thank you so much, Lan. Bye. 
Thank you so much, everybody. I'm going to get right into the next part of this thing, which is one last fact. First of all, the Vietnam War was a very long war that kind of was bad for both sides. There were bad people on both sides. Nixon on the American side and a lot of Vietnamese leadership people who wanted communism. But then also there were some good people on that side who were just trying to fight for their country. I know people think that U.S. wars are all they're all bad people on the other side. They're not always bad people. They're just following orders and trying to protect their country where they've been misled. Like what happened, there was some German people uh, who believed that the lies that the Germans perpetuated. So there's a lot going on there, and we can't just judge people based on their inherit, like, the team they're on. we got to judge them on their character and what they do as of that team. Thank you so much, and good night. Our next episode with George Flynn is the Catholic Vote History. And then on Sunday, the History of World War II with historian, um, with historian Ellis Wasson a little bit, and also some information from George Flynn on the draft during that war. Thank you so much, and good night.